This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me smiling at my guest, Kate Kelly. Hi, Kate. Peter, how are you? I was going to do a long intro, but you had such a big smile. I just wanted to say hello. Um, normally, I stumble over my guest's name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but I've known Kate for a long time, so I got it right on the first try, right? I yeah, I mean, right. I don't want to date ourselves, but what are we talking, 20 years? 20-ish. 20-ish? Yeah. 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 Long it was time. the 90s. Things Definitely. were crazy. Nice to see you. <laughs> Great to be here. Thank I would you like for to ha- having us. Thank you. Me. Would- <laughs> Sorry. I'm so used to being with my co-author, Robin, that I, I see her phantom sitting next to me. Let's let's give Robin full credit. Her last name is? Pogrebin. And you and Robin Pogrebin have written a book called? The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm holding it right now. Perhaps you, Recode Media listeners, have also heard about this book because Kate and Robin have been in the middle of a, I was going to say maelstrom. I'm going to say shitstrom. Shitstorm. Can we that? swear on yeah, yeah, your yeah. podcast? Okay. Shitstorm works. Yeah. How's how's that going for a book launch? Look, in all seriousness, any time that somebody's paying attention to your work, you're happy, um, including President Trump or uh, members of the Senate or House or other folks in the media. So there is that old adage of sort of no attention is bad attention. Um, the one thing that's been a little dismaying is that there seems to be this effort to distract from the facts and the reporting in the book, which there's an aversion in some quarters to actually discussing and analyzing, and an attempt to deflect from those facts with a whole sort of shoot the messenger effort around media gaffes or missteps perceived and real. Um, And it, it just sucks up airspace and takes it away from the very real conversation we were hoping to continue. I don't want to say start because I think it started a year ago with the actual confirmation hearings. And I think what happened at the end of that on October 6th was that people were left with this feeling of unsettledness and dissatisfaction with sort of the lack of transparency and the lack of facts around Judge Kavanaugh, his background, his education, his career, and certainly these allegations that arose of sexual misconduct. Well, well, well I think you've, you've summed up what the book is, so I don't have to do that. Um, and I think if you don't spend time on media Twitter, we can explain to you what, what Kate's been talking about. Although if you don't spend time on media Twitter, maybe you don't listen to this podcast. We'll see. But, but just to back up one step, you guys are writing a book about Kavanaugh. It's a year after the confirmation. Um, I'm assuming you think you're going to generate some controversy and noise and interest, right? That is sort of part of your thought going into this? 
Sure. I mean, we knew we would take some incoming, maybe a lot. We did not know what the focus of it would be. Um, but it's it's an inflammatory topic. Um, and that is one reason why we sought to really be objective in the reporting. I mean, we always are at The New York Times. There's always that effort. Um, and that was the case with this book as well. We wanted to sort of take all the key players at face value, assume they're all telling the truth, including Justice Kavanaugh, including Christine Blasey Ford, including Deborah Ramirez, and kind of take them from there and try to corroborate or substantiate their accounts. Um, so we set about reporting this story in a, in a very straightforward way. And the set of facts that emerges is incredibly complex and probably not what people expected. If I had to sum it up, I would say the following. It appears that uh, Justice Kavanaugh probably mistreated at least three young women in his own youth uh, during alcohol-fueled settings. Um, and, you know, there's fairly strong corroboration for one of those accounts. There's less corroboration for two of the others, although in one case we have a witness who is a respected figure in Washington and took his information to the Senate and the FBI. In another case, that's Dr. Ford. We have substantiated her account with a lot of sort of contextual details, and we find her credible for a lot of reasons, including where she was in that space and time. Um, and I can get into this more later, her lack of incentive to not tell the yeah. truth, her history of being honest, and the fact that her memory, uh, as spotty as it is, is consistent with that of a sexual assault survivor, according to memory experts and sex crimes experts. So that's the story we told. And at the same time, Justice Kavanaugh has become, as a professional, a really esteemed, dedicated public servant who's serious about mentoring young people especially women, who has bypassed on a number of occasions the opportunity to make tons of money in the private sector because he apparently really cares about government service, be that the independent counsel's office or George W. Bush's White House or 12 years on the, the circuit court in Washington or now the Supreme Court. He is a studious guy who cares about other people, is active in his community, and actually not as ideological on the bench as some may think. And so- and I've read the book. It's a great book. You should read it. It is, like like you said, studiously even-handed. And I'm wondering if if you thought going, as you were finishing it up, thinking, boy, if you hated Kavanaugh going in prior to reading the book, you could either take the stuff that you don't like about him from our book and, and be happy, or maybe you'll be dissatisfied that we're not, we're not excoriating him and vice versa. If you don't believe Ford, if you don't believe Ramirez, same thing. I could imagine you would have thought you'd be criticized from both sides from not sort of fulfilling their expectation. Was that sort of what you thought you'd be getting? Sure. And like I said, I, we didn't know what form it would take. We, we figured we would take criticism. We didn't know uh, whether writ large people would think that we were giving too much credibility to the accusers or too much credit to Justice Kavanaugh. The problem here, Peter, and it's kind of a fascinating media story, so that's another reason I'm glad to be here, is I think that people are so inflamed by this for various reasons. They see what they want to see. They have a set of facts that emerged as, as limited as they were. They have a set of facts that emerged last fall. If they're media watchers, they probably watched some or all of the September 27th hearings, which were the hearings with Christine Ford in the morning, 
and Judge Kavanaugh in the afternoon. They probably read some, although not a ton, of the media around it, and they formed an impression. They think that what she said happened or didn't happen. They think that he's being wrongly accused or not. And those impressions have only ossified over the course of the last year in the absence of new facts or evidence. And this dovetails with so many cultural cross-currents right now. You have partisanship, I don't want to say at an all-time high, it probably was pretty bad in Hamilton's mm-hmm. time and years in between, but a strong level of partisanship uh, in, in sort of recent memory. Um, you have the Me Too movement, which is now two years old and and has really energized and brought forward a lot of people, you know, certainly women, but also men, to, to kind of talk about past sexual harassment, sexual assault, and so on. But it's also sparked this backlash among people who feel like it's gone way too far and people are being wrongly accused and that there's this notion of believe women, believe survivors that has gone off the rails in the sense that people are believed at face value without evidence. You have a presidential administration in which the commander in chief is a pugilist. You know, he's a fighter and he uses words to fight and he uses Twitter to say what he thinks in an unabashed way. And although I think as a populace, we're kind of used to that and maybe not taking his words literally all the time, it does inspire a whole bastion of people to take his point of view and take it on and republish it in social media and elsewhere. And and the swarm of vitriol that can emanate from that is really strong. Yes. Boy, you're, you're, it's like you've done a couple of these interviews before. I think you've this might be one of the more articulate ones. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so. Um, I appreciate that we have time that I can we, actually we have deliver time. a long sentence. Yeah. I'm trying to think because there's this frustration that I have, a lot of folks have, I think, about sort of um, an effort that a lot of journalists have to come to the middle because sometimes there is a debate. I think there is, this is a good, this is a good version where you want to might, you might want to end up in the middle saying it's possible that both stories are true or have elements of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other stories where there really isn't a middle. There's, you know, the climate's changing. And if you, if you say it's not, that's a ridiculous statement and we shouldn't try to weigh both things. But this one might be in the category where you do want to sort of listen to everyone and, and come out in the middle. I think people – you should read the book. I think you might be frustrated by the end of the book saying, no, no, no. They're terrible. He's terrible. And, and you guys are really firm about saying, nope, we're, we're, we're drawing a lot. We're laying out the facts you guys can judge. Right. I mean I want to say you know, we have no opinion on whether Judge Kavanaugh should have become Justice Kavanaugh and or whether now that he is Justice Kavanaugh – there should be an investigation, an impeachment proceeding, nothing at all. We don't have an opinion on that, and we're not going to go there. We feel like that's above our pay grade. We do gather all the facts at the very end of the book and kind of present them to readers mm-hmm. in, in an epilogue that I wanted to read as very much of a procedural kind of layout of a case, albeit with a few narrative elements. But we thought it appropriate after wrestling with this for weeks and kind of workshopping it with other journalists that we trust um, that we could tell the reader, here's what we think is what the set of facts amounts to after 10 months of two of us working on this and looking at tons of documents and doing hundreds of interviews and rewatching the hearings and other videos and looking at floor plans in Montgomery County and so on. Here's what we think. And we do share that. And and 
if yeah. I may, you know, our takeaway as I as I flecked out before is that Christine Blasey Ford is credible and she's credible for a number of reasons. Deborah Ramirez, her account is corroborated by seven people and their vantage points range from people who heard about the alleged incident, you know, within a day or two days or within a few years, but certainly many years before we would have any sense of how relevant this would be in 2018. And then there's this third allegation that has a credible witness to it who brought it to government officials' attention. But that's frankly the one we know the least about. And the woman in question did not want to talk to us about it and has told friends that she doesn't remember it. And that's new information in the book. That's and this, right. This is comes out in this Time story that was published now eight days ago. Let's talk a little bit about that because okay. we've been talking about how how, you know, how much work you put into this thing, how studiously you sort of want to, to be in terms of how you're going to be even-handed about it and not inflammatory, even though it's an inflammatory subject. Time story comes out. Uh, even before it gets in the paper, it's already generating controversy because there's a tweet involved in which everyone blamed on a social media editor and turns out actually your co-author Robin had written that's right. And that was one of the unfortunate sort of elements of the rollout here and also the focus on kind of the messenger and the excerpt and the issues around the book rather than the facts in the book itself. But yeah, what happened was this tweet went out and it just was poorly worded and shouldn't have been issued. And actually, our social media team, at my request, dealt with it immediately, even though they had not been responsible for it. They had not originated it. This was a story that was dealt with uh, on the opinion side of the house, and they have their own folks. And anyway, we're happy that it was addressed, but sorry that people were offended, and and also sorry that it's just a distraction from what we're trying to do here. By the way, I remember seeing tweets from people saying, I don't like to pile on people, but in this case, I hope the social media person who wrote this is worried about their jobs. Again, it's, it's your co-author, Robin Pokerman. And if you look at what she wrote... And then you read the book, you can see why she wrote what she wrote in the tweet, because she's trying to condense basically a chapter of of a a well-reported book into a tweet that is trying to treat this thing even-handedly. And that's how you got to that point. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it it is a challenge when you have a book that is 300 plus pages and really does try to paint all the complexity and the nuance and give you all the disclaimers you would need to have to tweetify that or excerpt it in a way that's inclusive of all the necessary elements and sensitive and factual. And that's something for other authors to bear in mind as well. And you want to do the best you can. Or maybe don't tweet. Don't tweet at all? I don't know. I tweet a lot. Yeah, I'm just sort of underscoring that the book that I'm holding here in my hand, your book, the book you and Robin wrote, it's your work, and you can take full responsibility for it. But the way it gets rolled out mm. in, in, in within the Times, a giant institution, many pros, some cons, um, there's less of that, less of control there. And by the way, since you're listening to Recode Media, you will notice this is the third New York Times author we've had come in in, in the last few weeks to talk about their book. Um, yeah, I listened the, to Mike Isaac. Mike that was, was great. here. James Ponowazic was here. Yep. He was great. Um, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey haven't been here, but they're on Kara's podcast to talk about their book. Um, so this is this is an ongoing discussion within the Times. I'm not going to ask you to speak for the Times, but the way they handle their writers coming out with books and how they treat those books is a sort of an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. Have we exhausted this discussion for you? I think Are so. Are you good? I'm okay. happy to answer answer any other questions, but we've talked about it a lot and I don't have a whole lot more to say. If you are interested in annotating this with your own research, you can Google Kate. There's another Kate Kelly um, who used to be a Mormon and now isn't. Don't don't look at her, but, but I mean, look at her. I don't know anything about her. There's tons of information out there. You can figure this out on your own. You're smart. We're going to take a quick break. Back with Kate. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Still here with Kate Kelly, who's done talking about the, the week the week that was. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about the book and how you came to it. You are a business reporter for The Times. That's what you've been doing for a long time. Before that, you were at CNBC and The Journal. Um, really good business reporter. Thank you. I'm biased, but you're great. I don't think you've covered D.C. before. I don't think you've covered uh, anything like a, a Supreme Court nomination. How, how did you end up here? So one thing that's been uh, really great about working at the Times, and I started there uh, early in, what are we, 2019? Mm -hmm. Early 2017, is that they kind of let you roam. So I am, by definition, a business reporter with responsibility over sort of Wall Street, writ large, trading, lending, powerful figures, regulatory issues. I mean, my uh, sort of more beat-oriented coverage has ranged from doing some recent stuff on Jeffrey Epstein's finances to, um, you know, uh, I'm just trying to think of a more disparate example, uh, the goings on at Goldman Sachs. I was the first to write about how the CEO of Goldman Sachs is actually an electronic uh, music DJ. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff that I often write. You're one of the few people who's come in here and said, oh, this is the old Goldman building. Right. Most people say, this is the broad. old Goldman building, they get a blank look. I'm like, no, no, this is a historic building, and now it's a WeWork. It's a super historic building, and it, it's amazing to walk around here and find that there's a big uh, pan quotidian that yeah. spans the block and, you know, WeWork offices and, of course, Vox Media. Yeah. I mean, I remember being here for meetings as a, as a young reporter. Anyway, so that's my more typical material. But the nice thing about the Times is they really kind of let you roam where appropriate. And one thing that I've done with colleagues over the course of the last couple of years is look at President Trump and other key figures in the administration, including Jared Kushner and their former companies or their family companies and the dealings at those companies and the cross currents that sometimes occur between those businesses and these individuals' public roles. I did some reporting, for example, last year on uh, 666 Fifth Avenue, which is uh, has been the Kushner Company's headquarters building and was in some distress in terms of needing to pay off a mortgage and yes. come up with a buyer or a partner. And the fact that Brookfield property um, came in and, and sort of bailed them out, really. So, At one point, the Chinese were going to bail them out. Right. I mean, they were, and, and Charles Kushner was holding meetings with a variety of parties about new financing, and that raised questions. And so... I've done some stories in that vein that have kind of dealt with the cross currents that are quite unusual and quite interesting right now between the current administration and kind of business slash yep. Wall Street. So I've touched on it and I've worked a lot with our uh, colleagues in Washington. I should also say, speaking of Goldman Sachs, you know, you have, quote unquote, government Sachs, or at least you did at the beginning of mm -hmm. this administration with folks like Steven Mnuchin, who's still there, Gary Cohn, who is not... I don't know if we count Anthony Scaramucci, who was briefly there, was there, or Bannon, who was there years and years ago. But, you know, there were a whole handful of ex-Goldman Sachs people yep. that were in the administration. So that was kind of a topic of interest. But it was in this environment that I got a tip last fall from uh, someone I knew from from Washington, from, you know, 
growing up there uh, who said, you know, you should take a look at the yearbook from 1983 and Brett Kavanaugh and his friends and their discussions about something called the Renata Club. And um, and you were not on the story. You were I was not, not on the, the story. And in fact, I, you, you know, just, I, you just grew up in the D.C. area. That's right. And and actually, the tip came from somebody who had gone to Georgetown Prep and I didn't even realize it. I mean, I knew this person through Kavanaugh school. Correct. Yeah. Right. So I knew this person through other channels and I knew they were a Washingtonian by birth, but didn't didn't even know what school they'd gone to. So. Uh, I initially shared this with colleagues who were on the Kavanaugh story, and we talked about it and kind of didn't know what to make of it and uh, ended up doing some additional reporting myself. And actually, my editor, a guy named David Enrich, um, ended up joining me in reporting on this. And we did what became this Renata yearbook story that, you know, I haven't looked at the traffic in quite a while, but at least as of late last year, it had had something like 8 million page views. And if you block this out or didn't pay that much attention, this is him referring to a classmate basically as like, this is someone who's, who's an easy lay, basically. Right, right. I mean, it was, a, it was a series of references in the 1983 yearbook, one on Kavanaugh's page, and there were some, I forget the exact number, it was 12, 13, something like that, other students in his class who uh, had Renata references mm -hmm. on their individual pages. There was also a photo in the kind of candid photo section of Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge and others that had a caption referencing the Renata Alumni Club. And, and so this becomes a story because it points out his character. Then he did not. He has this convoluted explanation when he's actually testifying. Um, and it's it's there's a lot of there's elements like this throughout the story where on the one hand you can go look, if it's true, that's gross, but also he was a kid. And if he just said something to that effect during the confirmation hearing, maybe it's less of a story. Yeah. I mean, I think the Renata story is such an interesting emblem of the broader tale because I think two things are true here. I think that Kavanaugh and some of his friends from that time and now knew this woman, Renata, her name was Schroeder at the time, and liked her. And took her to some dances. And, you know, they were in this all-boys school and they would have theater productions and they would invite girls from neighboring all-girls schools to audition for their shows. And these girls would be in the shows. And Renata was somebody that did that. I believe she was a year younger than they were. She went to a nearby school called Stone Ridge. And she had like a cast party at one point at her house. And some of these boys came and they really liked her. They thought she was a really nice girl. Um, but they were also really attracted to her. She was apparently a pretty mm -hmm. attractive young lady. And uh, they, you know, talked about sexual contact with her, sexual experiences with her. There was even this sort of ditty or chant yeah. about, you know, what you referenced, you know, sexual experiences with her. By the way, you know, we got a statement from Renata herself, who's now married and a mom and, you know, lives in New England saying she had no idea that this was, you know, uh, what they were saying at the time and that there was no sexual contact with mm -hmm. these boys. And her friends from that time affirm that. And she's very hurt by all of this, as one would be. But then you have Judge Kavanaugh last September on Capitol Hill answering for this and having a tear in his eye and apologizing to her. I think, I think it's very difficult because I do think that this is, you know, adolescent stuff, you know, like bragging about sexual conquests and, you know, uh, being disparaging about someone that you actually do like yep. and do actually respect in your heart of hearts and wouldn't want to hurt them, wouldn't want it to get back to them. But, you know, at that age, you're sort of evolving and figuring out what the boundaries are. And that's not unusual to Kavanaugh or anybody else. That's just part of kind of 
one's development as a mature person, but it's it's hurtful at the same time. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that made the story so compelling to so many people is you could look at that and go, Ugh, that's bad, but also that's part of adolescence and growing up. Or you might say, you know what, we don't have to we don't have to condone that. We can. Be, I don't want my son to speak that way about other women. You might even say, you know what? It's no big deal at all. And anyone complaining about it is 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 a fragile snowflake. You can, again, sort of invest this in whatever with with, with whatever perspective you want. Um, but you write that story. You get on. Then are you then on the Kavanaugh beat from then on, or was that a one off? Unclear. I mean, yeah. I did this one story. It had this overwhelming response. At that point, I was hearing from other folks who had known Kavanaugh or Renata or others at that time with different, you know, leads and ideas for coverage. Um, and, and this is how reporting also works, right? You write a story, which then creates other stories in part because other people read your story and go, oh, I'm interested in that. Let me tell you something about it. Yeah. Stories beget stories. Absolutely. So I ended up doing two more stories last fall. One of them was about this letter that Kavanaugh had written um, early in 1983 to organize Beach Week, was this, which is this weekly sort of bacchanal uh, on the Maryland shore. Um, I mean, there are different places in Maryland and Delaware. I think the kids go from the D.C. area, but it's, you know, typically they rent a house or a condo and they either have like somebody's older brother or maybe nobody chaperoning. And there's a lot of drinking and a lot of hookups and a lot of legend that kind of uh, comes from that. So he wrote a letter to organize Beach Week, which would have been after his senior year. Um, And it was kind of interesting because on the one hand, it shows his organizational skills. You know, he's telling his friends, you guys need to get to thus and such location and give them a payment of $398 because I'm going to be on vacation with my parents on this date and it needs to happen. But at the same time, he's making jokes about, you know, anticipated sexual activity Mm or warning the neighbors about what rowdy um, tenants they're going to be and how there are, quote-unquote, prolific pukers among us. And he signs it Bart, which was his high school nickname and was yet another thing that came um, relevant at that September Capitol Hill hearing because the question of whether he was Bart O'Kavanaugh, which was kind of his um, avatar Mm -hmm. in some stuff that one of his friends from high school had written, was something he really didn't answer clearly. When your book came out last week, I mean, the thing about the new revelation, you confirmed something that he had sort of denied in the past and then had a new revelation. And again, you can view that as those acts themselves are a problem or it's his discussion of them on on Capitol Hill that was the problem. Mm -hmm. So at some point you decide, actually, I'm now a Kavanaugh reporter. I'm going to take time off and write a book or or does the and and how do you end up working with Robin on this? So um, again, was not on this beat. Right. So while I was working on the Renata story and the Beach Week story, Robin also had been kind of put on the Kavanaugh detail. And I'm trying to think total, I mean, it might have been a dozen of us or even 15 or even 20 at various points. I mean, there were a lot of people working on this This topic. This is the kind of thing the Times is uniquely suited to do. It can throw a ton of people on a story like this. That's right. And so there was this big team of people, some in D.C., but a lot of us in New York, and we were meeting Um, on a regular basis to kind of talk about what we were finding and what stories we were working towards or not. And Robin was part of that group. And I think that was the first time she and I had even ever met. And she, of course, was covering the Yale aspect of uh, Kavanaugh's background and, and what we would later understand to be the Debbie Ramirez allegations. But depending on what point in time you're talking about, you know, we didn't necessarily know the details of that or the identity of the student. So she was covering the Yale material. Um, I was covering 
the Georgetown prep material. So in some ways, it's as simple as Kavanaugh grew up in the D.C. area, went to Yale. You grew up in the D.C. area. Right. Robin went to Yale. Right. And and just that that familiarity with the environment gives you a leg up. Right. And it's worth noting Robin was in his class and they had some mutual friends. Um, she would say she didn't know him well. They uh-huh. kind of knew each other's face. They would say hello. Uh, they were in the same freshman dorm, but she didn't know him well. I was 10 years younger than he was. I graduated from my high school, National Cathedral, in 1993. Uh, He graduated from prep in 1983. So it needs to be said that there's a 10-year gap and, you know, things evolve over that time. But at least as a jumping off point, I felt like I understood those schools and that whole network of independent schools in Washington, um, as well as the kind of the social and the literal topography of the place. So she and I both bring these backgrounds to the table. We're both on this kind of large team. After Kavanaugh is sworn in, after this very brief FBI investigation that's pretty limited in scope, the results of which are kept confidential so that nobody really feels like they have satisfactory answers to whether these incidents occurred or not, or even... Even senators have just limited access to it. They have to go to the skiff, the they're in the skiff, room, they're in, and they only have an hour, that's and they right. can't tape anything. And they have one physical copy, you know, and at various points, senators are holding up pages and reading aloud to one another. Yeah, these are U.S. senators, which right. is like the glancing look at this, at this investigation. Right, right. Very brief and very restricted. We just had this sense that, like, the public at large and we as reporters just wanted to know more. I mean, there were other things in our notebook that we hadn't tracked down. And by the way, you know this as well as I do. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just making a list of 10 people to call and crossing them off once the people say, I refuse to talk to you, or you find out that somebody's, you know, left the country and aren't going to be reachable or whatever. But at least kind of doing the David Fahrenthold a little bit, like having the list, crossing it mm-hmm. off, seeing who says what, just knowing that the work has been we done. We Emily in here talking about her work. It's very, you make a list and you just, you either, you or you and your partner or whatever the group is, make a figure, you just start calling. Right. And so we knew then, as we know now, there, there may never be fully clear answers. There may be some, you know, potential perspectives that we'll never get because people just don't want to talk about it. Um, but at least we try and, and we tell our readers what we have done and what people have said, if anything. So um, that was what we wanted to embark on. And, and we decided to try to do this book where we would finish the inquiry, make all those phone calls, learn everything we could about Brett Kavanaugh as a young person, as a judge, as a professional, what were his influences, what is his outlook, Um, but especially with the personal lens. Like, who is he as a person? How does he treat people? How did he treat people as a youth? And how has that evolved? So this is a biography of Kavanaugh in some ways. It's a smaller biography of, of two of his accusers. It's a story about Washington. It's a story about ideology. Um, obviously a story about politics. Uh, how does reporting out, and it's obviously a story about charged claims of, of sexual harassment. How does reporting a story like that differ from the Wall Street reporting that's sort of your stock and trade? Mm. Or is it the same thing? Well, I mean, the chief difference is that I had, you know, more or less a year to do this book and your typical story, although the Times is pretty great about giving us time and space when we need it, but your typical story is a much shorter sort right. of time frame. So just having the luxury of time and being able to make repeated trips to Washington or, you know, call someone that I really want to talk to like five times or, you know, maybe go knock on their door. Um, 
and really also just thinking about it. I mean, I probably read 25 or 30 books during this process. Not all of them were perfectly germane. Some of them, I'll be honest, were like Scandinavian mystery novels. But I just read a lot uh -huh. and thought a lot, and it was really nice to have a co-author that I could sort of brainstorm with yeah. and, and kick around. It's with. not your first book. It's not my first book. It's my third book, but my first that I've done with a partner. I should say, as a shout-out to uh, partnership reporting, having a partner on your beat or on a story assignment is fabulous. And because? I've done it on several occasions. Because people have different personalities, and I think reporting is all about people, even in the digital age. I mean, it's all about picking up the phone or sitting down and having, like, hopefully some sort of meeting of the minds. It's and not just texting? No. And, like, establishing a level of trust. And, you know, some people click with me and some people don't. And some people might click with Robin who yeah. don't click with me. So having two different people to sort of reach out and make contact having two different perspectives to bring to the same material and sort of kick it around, having, oh my gosh, like a fresh set of eyes to look over your copy once you've written it because you don't want fatigue to set in. You want to be improving and honing your written prose like at every step of the way. And that's not always humanly possible yeah, when you're funny, tired. Because we think of, I often think of journalism as something you sort of do on your own and you, you write your story and maybe you hand it to your editor and you get feedback, but it's it's your work and your thing. Um, and you can certainly do it that way. But, you know, you work at a newspaper, there's lots of people who touch your work and 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 collaborative writing. I really haven't done much of it, but it's pretty interesting to me. Mm. I'm actually going to do a collaborative project coming up soon that I'll be able to tell you about cool. at a later date. But I'm also assuming that when you're dealing with the Ramirez's and Ford's of the world, They've been thrust into a spotlight, but still probably don't really have an apparatus for dealing with it. Um, there's people around them, um, especially I'm thinking some of the, the women in, in Ford's social circle who who really are not used to talking to reporters, all of a sudden are exposed to them in, in a way and, and might be really skittish. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's definitely that sense of kind of inexperience with the press and perhaps no desire to deal with the press. Yeah now or ever. There's also this reticence, especially in the D.C. area, toward taking any sort of a side on this thing. I mean, what you and I were talking about at the beginning of this conversation in terms of the polarization and the cultural biases that people have and, you know, just how inflammatory this topic is, I think that is like 2X in Washington. And that's where the Blasey family, Christine's parents and her two brothers live, uh, that's where a lot of her friends from high school still are, as well as all of Kavanaugh's friends and family. So it is hard to approach people sometimes in that sphere and make them feel comfortable. So it's not that they're not used to dealing with the press. I mean, they're not. But it's more that they they understand politics in D.C. because they grew up around it, even if they're not directly involved right. in it. And that alone makes them wary. Um, that's part of it, it, but it's even more intimate than that. I mean, some of these people have a daughter who's on Brett Kavanaugh's basketball team, where, by the way, he's beloved, you know? Um, some of them may go to Blessed Sacrament with him. I mean, it is such a small world. The lawyer who represented Leland Kaiser, who was Christine Blasey Ford's childhood friend who was alleged to be at this incident, he and his family are regulars at Blessed Sacrament, which is the Kavanaugh's church. He's also friendly, as it happens, with Christine Blasey's brothers, who are lawyers in the D.C. area, is a member of the Columbia Country Club and a golfer. And Leland, when she was working, was a golf coach and a, a, a lover of golf and her ex-husband. And she met the lawyer through the club. I mean, 
you can just see all the entanglements and cross currents. It's really quite amazing. And in the best of cases, there's a sort of friendly, neighborly nonpartisanship that occurs, you know, through church mm-hmm. or clubs or sports or schools or whatever it is where we have our you day know, job, but we're all. Yeah, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, but like, let's meet in the middle and just realize that we're both, you know, kind of fellow citizens and Washingtonians and we're going to break bread together. I do think that still goes on, but this was one of those things that really affected relationships, even on the local and and one-to-one level, unfortunately. Would you do a book like this again or are you aching to get back to business? Sure, I would. The work on this book, the exploration of it, the writing, the fine-tuning, the wrestling with ideas. I mean, it was painful at times. It's painful stuff, you know? It really is awful. And I'm not just speaking about the allegations of sexual assault, which which are very painful, but also, you know, what the Kavanaugh's have been through is super awful. And what the Fords have been through is super awful. I mean, people have been really damaged by this. So that's painful to kind of watch and hear about. But somebody has to bear testament to this stuff. And because the FBI investigation was so short and so secret and left so much on the table, I just think there was a value to having somebody bring a more complete, more time-consuming, and more 360-degree perspective to the thing. And I don't regret doing that at all. I'm happy that we did it. And I hope people get something out of it. I think they will. The book again, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. We're not done talking to Kate Kelly. They'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Back here with Kate Kelly, and I just want to go back a little bit in time, maybe 20 years in time, and talk about how you got from the New York Observer, where you were when I met you back in the late 90s. I remember seeing Kate Kelly and going, oh, Kate Kelly is going to be a star reporter. Look at her go. Um, you had this kinetic energy. You were, I just sort of remember like you chasing stuff, like literally like chasing down buses and cars. And I'm sure, I'm <laughs> sure some, there's some alcohol adult stuff in my head as well. Um, how did you get to the New York Observer and how did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? Great question. Um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., as, as we've talked about. My parents were total news junkies. And I have this clear memory from Saturdays and Sundays of them sitting around the dining room table with coffee and having the Washington Post sort of spread out in front of them, reading to themselves, but also reading aloud to one another the most, you know, notable or funny or newsworthy bits. So this was the post-Watergate era. This is probably the 1980s that I'm thinking of. And at least in my household, journalists were like rock stars. And it was- Your parents were not journalists. They were not. My mom had worked on her college paper in Indiana. She had worked on the Peace Corps internal uh, newspaper. My parents had both been Peace Corps volunteers. They'd left their hometowns and gone abroad. And after their tours, they came back and worked in Peace Corps headquarters for Sergeant Shriver. And this, I would say, was probably one of the formative experiences of their lives. But 
they, my dad went, went into the private sector and my mom did a variety of things, including um, some nonprofit work. But there are people who love the papers and this was not an unusual, this was not an unusual thing. In that's the 70s right. Or 80s that, that well-educated, uh, even if they weren't well-educated, that regular Americans read the newspaper, they found it enjoyable and useful and also sort of part of the thing they should be doing as citizens. Right. Exactly right. So um, I went to college in the city. Um, I actually worked on the alternative newspaper at Columbia, which was called the Federalist Paper. And it may su- not surprise you to know that the alternative paper at Columbia in the early 1990s was the conservative leading paper. Um, and we sort of modeled ourselves after the real Fed for some reason, even though we weren't setting monetary policy. Uh, there was a chairman of the board and I was the chair for a brief period of time. <laughs> um, I should say, though, even then, you know, my interest and my work was always on the news side. I don't even know if the guys, you know, told me what they were going to write about on the editorial page. Maybe they let me read it before publication. But, you know, basically I was a news person. And the reason I did that was... I was on the crew team my freshman year, and we have a fantastic daily newspaper at Columbia, The Spectator, but I just didn't have time to work at that daily paper along with the athletics that I was doing. So I joined the Fed, and I thought they did a great job, and they came out every couple of weeks, and it just seemed to me there was more time in space, which is another thing we've been talking about. So not to get too uh, long-winded, but uh, when I was a junior, I got a, a one-day-a-week job at the New York Observer, and I worked there part-time. I got 50 bucks a week. Mostly to make Xerox copies. And the Observer in the 90s, wry, smart, incisive, almost de- solely dedicated to writing about rich and famous people in New York in a, a sharp way. Right, right. Uh, has then made no money, read by very people, and then generated dozens and dozens of really, really good journalists that are scattered through the media today. Yeah, I mean, we had an unbelievable group in my years there. We had, you know, Gabriel Snyder and Alex Kaczynski and Terry Galway, Nick Palmgarten, um, Peter Kaplan, our fearless leader, God rest his soul. He was a fantastic mentor. We adored him. Jim Windolf, who's a colleague of mine at the Times today, uh, Warren St. John. I mean, there was just an, an incredible group of people that I was learning from. And I did a bunch of stuff. I mean, I helped with the gossip column. I wrote the residential real estate column. I eventually did a series of stories on a scandal at Morgan Stanley, which was probably how I got hired at the Wall Street Journal, ultimately, even though I had another job in between. What was it about The Observer and in, in, in the city that you liked writing about? I mean, the, traditionally, the rad, right, is you, you, you leave New York, you go to a very small town paper, and then you get to a bigger paper and a bigger paper and a bigger paper. You skip that part. I actually wanted to do that. And I remember as a senior getting a copy of like Ad Age, I think, or one of the advertising newspapers and looking at like the top 100 newspapers by circulation and sending cover letters to like the first 25 or or maybe 25 out of the top 50 that were in locations that I thought I might want to live in. And it ranged from like the Berkshires to New Orleans to I don't even know. And I, I didn't get a single response The only place that I really got some traction was the Aniston Star in Alabama. And I was really interested in working there, but they didn't have an opening. And I remember driving down there just on my own dime to like have a meeting with them. You drove down to Alabama. Yeah, I did from D.C. And they were like, oh, come on in and join our editorial meeting. You know, we'd love to meet you. And, 
you seem like a promising young person. You know, we'd love to hire you, but we don't have an opening. And when we do, we're probably going to hire our intern who's based in Washington. And I had this offer from The Observer, which I also loved, but I wanted to get out of New York City and into the rest of the country and kind of have a little more perspective. It wasn't meant to be. I mean, I needed a job. <laughs> and The Observer was a great place, and and I have no regrets. But But you're right. I mean, that is the traditional path, and that is actually – what I set out to do. You did great work at the Observer, um, stint at Time, you were at the Journal. At one point, you went to, out to Hollywood for the Journal um, and wrote one of my favorite all-time pieces. It's a profile of, I think you wrote with someone else. Uh, Scott, Marissa Marr. Who, who is now the, the main consultant for Succession. Which is an amazing show. And if you want to know why all that insidery stuff shows up in Succession, it's, I think, in part because of Marissa. I was talking with someone, by the way, from the Murdoch world last week, and they're like, I cannot believe some of the stuff that has gotten in there that comes from us. Wow. That was not in print. Wow. Like, there was apparently a boar hunt for real in the Murdoch world. Oh, my God. And it shows up in Succession. So there you go. Um, you guys wrote a profile of Scott Rudin, who has, still is a big deal producer, sort of is the archetype awful boss. That piece always stuck with me. Uh, I was amazed that he sort of continues to work. And I also thought of it a lot during the Weinstein stuff because obviously Weinstein's predation's terrible and lots of uh, horrible sexism uncovered throughout the industry. Um, but one of the discussions that came out of that was, you know, there's just a lot of awful behavior in Hollywood. And the fact that Weinstein was also raping people was additionally bad, but there was a lot of just bad boss behavior that was excused and sort mm -hmm. of, I'm wondering what, if you've gone back and thought about sort of the people you wrote about and worked with in Hollywood and, and if you think they're going to sort of change their ways beyond not assaulting young women or men. I mean, look, I think there's been a huge cultural awakening that is seeping into every corner of the American economy. And um, actually, our colleague Pamela Paul was asking me and Robin about this, and I thought it was a good question. You know, is there more accountability or, or a quicker reaction in the private sector than there is in the public when issues come up? And that's, that's a great and provocative question. It, it does seem to be that you're seeing um, more of a reaction and more of a response to these concerns at companies, uh, perhaps, than you are at the government level, even though there are plenty of elected officials who are concerned about these issues and, and speaking up about them. Right. I'm just drawing a distinction between, like, you should not harass someone sexually in the office. That's bad. But also, you shouldn't be an asshole. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a difficult thing for an HR department to sort of adjudicate um, and some of it just has to sort of happen between workers and people have to say, I don't want to work for you because you're an asshole. That's one way that gets resolved. Yeah, I mean, if, I'm totally if you have the capacity to do it. I'm totally speculating here because I haven't really thought about this, but it's a good question. I mean, I, it seems to me that the movie making process is so talent driven and so relationship driven. I mean, the thing that struck me when I moved out to L.A. to cover the industry, the business of the industry was even people whose job it was to deal with the press would not deal with me unless I had had a meal with them, met them face to face, had a drink, had coffee, whatever. It's so relationship driven and the product can literally take years to make in a contrast to Wall Street, where as a reporter, your call is either returned at the end of the day or not at all. Yeah. There's no, I'm rolling calls. I don't have her right now. She'll mm -hmm. get back to you in three weeks. I mean, sometimes I would have a studio executive return a call after two or three weeks and I had no idea why I had called in the first place, but I would always take the call because, you know, yep. you get time with the person when you get it and there's always something to ask. But 
I, I think there's probably going to be a slower response time in some cases because I think that the industry is so beholden to certain producers, directors, studio heads, actors, and so on, that although we're seeing a rinsing out of some of the bad behavior and a greater demand for accountability, there still are empowered people who are going to be able to continue doing what they're doing because of their bankability. I don't have a good segue for this, but at one point you went from the journal to CNBC. You were on TV for multiple years, right? Six and a half. Six and a half. My my understanding is when print people get onto TV, they never go back. They love the exposure. They love the money. They like the charge of having people respond to them on TV. Why did you leave TV? You know, at the end of the day, it wasn't for me. I mean, I uh, but really... You, but it was. You did it for... It wasn't like you did it a year and washed out. You, right, right. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it just wasn't the right fit. I mean, I had colleagues that I really liked. Uh, I enjoyed doing TV. I still do. Um, I'm still a contributor at CNBC. It's underestimated, I think, as a medium. I think TV people are unfairly dismissed oftentimes mm-hmm. for not being smart or not doing their diligence. And I'm sure there are some people who don't, but... A really good TV reporter or anchor is kind of like a trial lawyer. I mean, you have to be truly prepared and ready for any eventuality and armed with your facts. Otherwise, you will be made to look clueless, and that's not good. So um, I think it's it's can be a very intelligent and exciting medium. But the thing is, I mean, in an environment like that, you're more or less expected to have a story every day either your own or maybe a fresh take on something else that's occurring on your beat that somebody else has written about. And you say, okay, interesting story in the journal today about da-da-da-da. I've done the math and I see that so-and-so is going to lose this much money if the stock doesn't rise or whatever it Mm -hmm. is that you do that's a sort of derivative story. And that just doesn't leave much room for innovation or investigation. And that's what I really like to do. I really like to, as we've said, like get behind the scenes and travel and have entire days where I'm just looking at documents or, you know, I'm I'm traveling around and, and trying to find people who can address an issue. And TV is just not a medium that typically leaves space for that. So I miss that a lot. There's also an interesting thing that goes on where if you're a beat reporter, I think it's really hard to segue from one beat to another. At CNBC, I covered banks for a while, and I, I did a bunch of stuff on commodities. My last book was on commodities. But ultimately, I was the hedge fund reporter. And that was a great beat at CNBC. They really focus on hedge funds. There's always an interesting story. It's It can be. It doesn't have to be. But it can be very equities-driven, and they really focus on the S&P 500 there. So that was a, a really good beat to have, and I got uh, a lot of time on shows. But I was interested in more than just hedge funds. I wanted to cover other things. And yet there is this notion, and I think it's true as a viewer, that if you see Kate Kelly, maybe you have the volume off, but you're expecting a hedge fund story. Mm -hmm. And if Kate Kelly is talking about pharma, you're like weirded out and maybe even angry. And you're also not going to do the (laughs) Renata story. Definitely not. And and even with my beat at the Times, that was a departure. But I, I love the ability to roam and I love the ability to kind of travel with my notebook. And I... I'm grateful to my superiors for allowing that to happen. Well, I'm glad you're at the Times. I'm glad you're doing your work. I'm glad you came here to talk to us. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I know you're still touring, so I'll let you get out to your tour. It's a West Coast swing. That's right. We're going out to San Francisco, Marin, and Los Angeles. Enjoy. Thank uh, you. Thanks again, Kate Kelly. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Jelani Carter, a one-man wrecking crew today, for putting this together. Uh, this is Recode Media. I think this is going to be a special episode, which means you're going to have another episode coming in probably a day or two. 
Sim, sim. 